The following podcast is presented by Together Washington. Together Washington, we are seeking to build bridges across divides and tell the inspiring stories of those building the common good. If you'd like to support or get involved with Together Washington, go to togetherwashington.com. We have a phenomenal guest on the program today, Amy King, the CEO of Pallet and Weld, doing incredible work across the West Coast. I cannot wait to have Amy on the program, and we're going to have a great time. We are telling the inspiring stories of those building the common good across our region, across our state. We're at a time where it's it can be difficult. To be able to find that common ground, to find the places and spaces that we can build together. And so often it's hard, I think, in today's society, folks think that we can't hold on to, say, convictions or values and still work with people who are who are different. And here in the program, we wanna um, we wanna showcase, you know, a lot of different groups, a lot of different viewpoints, a lot of different things that um you know, folks might say, goodness sakes, you know, I, I can't work with someone who is different than me in, in this or that. And we've got to be able to listen, to learn, to engage, to ask questions, to have honest, respectful dialogue and be able to certainly have robust dialogue. But at the end of the day, understand that, hey, we're <laughs> we're we're community members here. We're we're humans and we've got to learn how to engage and listen and empathize and and um but that doesn't mean we don't have really powerful conversation and push each other but that's what we want to do on the show we want to um have a a wide range of guests so glad that you're with us on this amazing program because we got Amy King with us today. She is the CEO of Pallet Shelter, Weld Seattle, which is a social justice organization, and Square Peg Development. Amy, I don't know how you have time for all that, but we're going to dive into some amazing stuff that she's doing to help those in need in our community and all along the West Coast. Amy, welcome to the show. Thanks, Tim. Great to be here. It's great to have you. And so, Amy, you and your husband, Brady, you guys have, you started Square Peg and then Pallet, mm-hmm. and now you've got Weld going. Give us, you know, you know that that's a lot. I don't know how, I mean, thanks for mm-hmm. taking some time to be with us, but give us yeah. that, that quick cursory view of what these three orgs are doing right now. Yeah, sure. So uh, my husband and I started Square Peg Construction in 2014, and Square Peg is a general contractor that builds uh, permanent products, both market rate and affordable, around the city of Seattle and the Puget Sound area. Um, what's unique about Square Peg is that 83% of our employees are individuals that are exiting the criminal justice system, addiction recovery programs, and homelessness across the city. And these are individuals that are interested in the construction trades. So our goal there is to build and develop a workforce to help 
um, help us construct the amount of housing that we so desperately need of permanent housing, uh, but also to increase housing supply. So that, that's uh, Square Peg's goals. Um, along the way, in 2016, we started a company called Pallet, which is a manufacturing company. Uh, we design and, and produce uh, rapid deployment shelters that go up in 30 to 60 minutes uh, that are used for homelessness response, disaster response, and mobile workforce housing. Uh, those also provide job opportunities for people that are traditionally marginalized uh, but in a manufacturing industry. And same thing, more than 80% of the employees in that entity come from those three backgrounds. And then along the way, we felt like, you know, as we worked with our employees uh, to learn more about the reentry process and reintegration following homelessness and addiction, we realized that, that people need a lot more than just jobs, although that is a really key piece of their success in reintegration. Uh, and they needed things like housing and wraparound resources and connection to uh, public services and community groups. And so we started a nonprofit called Weld Seattle. Uh, Weld Seattle houses about 150 people a year using vacant developer properties across the city. Uh, and then we also have an employment program in that entity. And we're really excited to announce that next year we're opening Seattle's first ever collaborative reentry resource center through that entity as well. So lots of fun stuff going on. We're really excited about it. Wow. I mean, amazing work. Congratulations. So great. And I mean, there's I've got 30 follow-up questions from all that but <laughs> great <laughs> <laughs> so i mean first go, on pallet so mm -hmm. some some folks might they they're hearing a lot about tiny homes or tiny houses mm -hmm. right because so yeah. many folks here in the region you know that over the last few years that's been it's like in the news every day right homelessness and what's mm -hmm. happening and, and they're hearing a lot about tiny tiny houses is that what you're doing yeah, kind of. So, I mean, when you think of a, the tiny homes, you know, people have different views of what a tiny home is, right? Um, so what we provide are emergency shelters that are individual in nature. So these are singular or double occupancy units. Um, as I mentioned, they go up really fast. They're a little different from the tiny homes that you see around the Seattle area today in that they're made of a non-traditional construction material. So they're cleanable, sterilizable, they're panelized, they go together fast, they can be moved really easily and taken apart if needed. They're really meant to be more of a functional, urgent response. We see homelessness as a crisis that should be treated like an emergency. So we created something that was scalable and rapid use and easy to use and reusable so that you know, we could start acting like homelessness is the emergency that it is, and we could get people into housing as quickly as possible. So they're a little bit different when you see them from what you would traditionally think of as a tiny home, but the model is the same. So all of our sites across the country are set up in a community setting. Um, uh, units are set up around hygiene facilities, food uh, services, and all of our sites, it is a requirement for us, all of our sites have full-time, around-the-clock service provision, case management, and rehabilitative efforts for the residents who live there. Wow. So you're doing this, I know, in Los Angeles. Are you, are yeah. you doing some of this in Seattle? Or I, I know there's been maybe some movement to do some work here in Seattle around the tiny houses? Yeah, there's been a lot of talk um, in the Seattle area around this this movement and expanding tiny home villages. Um, we, to date, have set up one uh, unit in the Seattle area, or one, excuse me, one site, and that was in connection with King County um, and Dow's team. Um, it's down on Elliott Avenue. Most Last year, we set up oh, just over 2,000 shelter beds across the country, um, everywhere but our own backyard, which is 
you know, a bummer, but, you know, we get it. It's, it's all right. So uh, we do have sites. Our longest running site actually is in Tacoma, close by. Um, and it's a fantastic site with an 89% success rate placing people in permanent housing. So we're really proud of that site. And you're down. So tell us about the work down in L.A. because you're, you're down in L.A. quite a bunch. Yeah. Yeah, so we've been working with uh, elected officials in L.A. at the city there uh, for just over a year. As you're probably aware, there are 66,000 homeless people uh, in L.A., and 48,000 of those are unsheltered. So really just a a massive problem. Um, And so they are working with um, a number of groups to do a broad-based approach and response effort to get as many people inside as quickly as possible. As you might be aware, there's also a a federal uh, Supreme Court case going on there um, where uh, the L.A. Alliance for Human Rights sued the city and the county for their lack of response over the last 10 plus years. Um, And so their their urgency is being somewhat fueled and motivated by that. But actually, the city has actually really stepped up and has been great to work with and, and is starting to move with urgency and think creatively and embrace innovation when they think about responding to homelessness there. So are, is that is that going to be a long-term relationship for you guys down in L.A.? Yeah, I mean, I, I hope so. I think so. Um, you know, it kind of depends. And it's, you know, our sites are not, it, it, there's a lot to it that has to be considered in terms of service provision and all of that and site selection. And so I think there, there'll be ongoing opportunities for us to, uh, set up additional sites and, and rehabilitative communities for people there. Um, one thing that we are looking at, because there's been such a broad-based response there, um, you know, they're really interested in our social impact employment model that we have here, where we're employing people that, that need jobs. Um, and so we are looking at a coordinated effort with them right now to put a secondary production plant on Skid Row. Um, they are working hard to um, move people off of Skid Row as quickly as possible into housing, not criminalizing for homelessness, not sweeps, but to move people into effective housing with services. And part of that is job creation. So we are hopeful that we might be a part of creating some jobs for people as they exit that system down there. Oh, that's wonderful. And I mean, that's Thank a you. that's a great just little segue to, to, to talk a little bit about what's happening here and just get your thoughts. Overall kind of assessment of how we're doing here where are we? Where are our challenge areas? Uh, what can we be doing better when it comes to folks here without homes? Yeah, that's a that's a tough, loaded question. But I, yeah, I'll be honest. <laughs> so um, I, you know, I think what we see across the country, you know, as I mentioned, working with LA and with a number of other cities across the country, what we're seeing is this really um, awesome creative approach to think about new ways of responding that address the root cause issue. And then sometimes we go to cities where we see this obsession with the status quo and permanent housing is the only way. And we, as a side note, you know, permanent housing is needed. It's absolutely the way, but we also build permanent buildings. So we understand how long it takes, how cost prohibitive it is. And we cannot allow our streets to be waiting rooms for permanent housing. And that's the approach we've taken uh, in LA and everywhere. And I would say it here as well. What I see when I drive around city of Seattle is we have allowed our streets to become waiting rooms for people who need our help. They are suffering and they need a place to go. They need a place to stabilize and to engage with services. A lot of them have 
uh, significant medical, mental health, addiction issues, not all of them, but a lot of them. And a lot of that is actually triggered by their experience on the streets. And so it's, it's you know, there's, there's this sort of misperception that allowing people to camp and live on the streets is compassionate. And I would argue it's not. It's, it's actually, you're actually sentencing people to death. They need services. You're, it's not compassionate to allow people to remain living in a way that is detrimental to their health. And I wish that we would act with more urgency on getting people inside. Once we can get them inside, they can engage with services. And I think there are a lot of uh, people here, service providers and elected officials, who I think understand that and are voicing that. What I see here in Seattle and I hear in other cities as well about our city is that we just can't seem to get everybody on the same page enough to move forward. And that's really frustrating. I mean, I go to other cities and they're like, oh, you're from Seattle. Wow, you guys haven't done much. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> that's, I, you're right. Uh, and, and I, you know, I'm not inside City Hall. I couldn't say why that is. I don't, I'm not privy to that excuse me, to that information, but it certainly is frustrating as a citizen and as someone who is helping to address homelessness across the country and other cities, it's frustrating to, to feel like we're just ignoring it or we're just allowing it uh, because, because we don't know how to move forward, so we just don't do anything. Uh, we might not have the perfect solution at Pallet or elsewhere, but just do something, Pallet or otherwise, I yeah. don't care, just it, do something. I mean, I... I appreciate you saying that. I've said this a couple of times and, and I hate to even, you know, just get, get cranky, but, um, <laughs> but I, what I see recently um, over the last few years is leaders who are not leading with conviction and courage, but leaders who are leading with ideology and, and who are more worried about, okay, if we do this, then these people are going to say this. And if we do that, then this group's going to do this. And and I, I'm not seeing leaders just truly leading out of principle and courage and conviction, unfortunately. You know, it, it just seems like we're led by whatever s- someone's ideology is, you know, and then we have to kind of parse it and say, okay, I've got to kind of be able to not do too much and, and upset this group or that group. And that is not, that's not how you help people. And yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I totally agree. And I think the other piece that I, I see a lot, I see groups that, you know, they see things working and they do, they want to do more of it, which is great. Um, but there seems to be sort of this, and this isn't just Seattle. We see this in lots of cities that, People, I think, especially decision makers, they want to be effective with the dollars they have, which makes a lot of sense and I'm fully supportive of, but they fight over what's the right path to take to address the issue. And it's sort of this, this thinking of, well, we have to you know, put everybody in the same box and we're going to do this one blanket approach and it's going to be great. It's going to solve the problem. That's just not the case. You're talking about people and people aren't the same and different people need different things. They need different services. They need different housing opportunity. They need different shelter access. So we are really strong supporters of just do something. You know, we call it the spaghetti model, right? Throw it against the wall, and if it sticks, do a little more of it. But try a lot of things, right? We need a lot of different approaches. We need a lot of different tools in our toolbox. So let's do some more shelters. Let's do enhanced shelters. Let's do the hotels. Let's let's do the permanent housing. Let's, you know, do a little bit of everything. And then whatever sticks, do a little more of that, right? But don't do nothing for the sake of, well, we don't, we can't decide on what the right answer is. So we're just not going to do anything. That feels like a true waste of opportunity and resources, in my opinion. 
We got Amy King with us today, CEO of Pallet and Shelter, uh, Pallet and Weld, Pallet Shelter and CEO of Weld and Square Peg, and they are building uh, tiny homes across the West Coast, and just coming up, going to be opening up an amazing building that we'll we'll get into this in a little bit down in Pioneer Square. We'll talk about that and some of their uh, their partners in that. Amy, you're uh, doing great work. You're, you're a local girl. I am. You're local. Where, <laughs> where and you went? Where did you? What town did you grow up in? Uh, I grew up in Edmonds. Uh, yes, so, you yeah, did. I'm from here. I, I knew I liked you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Edmonds, and you, um, you're a graduate of King's, and um, did, did you go to school with Matt Larkin? Yeah, he's he's younger than me. He graduated a little after me, but um, I went to school with his brother. Okay. Yeah. He ran for attorney general last year and now yeah. is uh, looking at running for Congress this next year, so awesome. we, had a, we had a fun conversations with Matt. But um, yeah. so what's your... Uh, are you in Edmonds now? Are you are you living in Edmonds now? Yeah, so actually we are, but um, so we're sort of in transition. Uh, we are in the process of moving to North Bend, which we're really excited about. So, wow. My um, yeah, my family lives out there, so we're excited to remain in King County, but kind of get out uh, into the outdoors a little more. And my brother and sister in law live out there. My nieces and nephews, and my husband's best friend, and so we're really excited to take our family out and ski more and get outside and mountain biking and hiking and all that. So we'll move over the summer. We're really excited. Wow. That's a big move. That is a big yeah. move. Oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> well, you'll, you'll still be able to listen to the show from North Bend. Yes. We're, we're yes, still, we uh, which is good. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll still be working in Seattle and beyond as well. So we're going to do the commute. And so we'll still be in the city a lot. Will your kids go to school out in North Bend? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so they're transitioning to the schools out there. Yeah, okay. How are they feeling? They they excited or nervous or? Yeah, no, they're excited. They, um, you know, I think they're excited to try something new. And our oldest daughter is a very competitive volleyball player, and they have a great volleyball program out there. And she's, you know, our kids love to ski and bike and be outside. So I think this will be a really good uh, fit for them. And yeah, we're excited. It's it's a change of pace for us, and it'll be great. So is that would that be Mount Sai High School? Okay, yeah, that's where she'll go. Oh, good. Yeah. I actually we played in a uh, pre-COVID in a basketball tournament out there, and they're, I think they're, I think they're building part of their school out there. Uh-huh. And oh my goodness, <laughs> yeah, they have a brand new school that they built like just before COVID, and then they were shut down all year. So it's basically brand new still. And so she's, I mean, it's exciting. It's a big change for her. Big a lot larger school than where she's been. So that's beautiful. It's that oh my goodness. Yeah. I mean, that was I was unbelievably impressed and i mean i think yeah. there was like nine basketball courts in there or something so yeah. you'll have plenty of space <laughs> yeah. for volleyball that's for sure yes yeah hey one of the for things sure. i wanted to ask you about amy so that's just that is just so impressive and i think i i really want to kind of hone in on is and you mentioned that you said 83 percent of your mm-hmm. employees have um, come out of the criminal justice system or have experienced homelessness addiction <laughs> This is absolutely. I mean, this is powerful. Here, I, I want to dive into number one. Wh- wh- how did that start? Where did that come from? And mm-hmm. and how is that? How is that going? I mean, I'm I'm sure you're learning so much. You're giving you know men and women an opportunity to 
build job skills and training and all these things that I don't think we hear enough about, but I think is, is so important. So how, how did that start? Yeah, so uh, we started this work very much by accident. Um, it, it sort of happened to us more than we sought it out, but now we very intentionally seek it out, and it is kind of the core of our mission here uh, across our companies. But uh, when we first started SquarePeg in 2014, you know, my husband had set out to hire some laborers to help him, and we posted the job on, you know, Craigslist you know, indeed, all the different various places that you post, and literally nobody applied. And at the time, there was just this massive shortage of construction workers. I mean, there still are. Uh, it's improved some. But, um, you know, we at the same time, we had a, a mutual friend who came and asked us to help uh, and coordinate with another um, gentleman who had started his own construction company and had five employees working for him. He said, you know, could you teach him what you know about the business side of running your own business and and kind of work with them? And so we were contracting them as laborers, and I was helping them build out their business aspects and, and kind of talking through some of that with them. And then finally they came to us and said, you know, to be honest with you, we started this business out of necessity, but we would rather just work for you guys. And we said, well, that's great. That solves the problem for both of us. So we sort of absorbed them into what we were doing. And then, you know, as, as is my practice as a manager, which I've been, you know, managed people my whole career, I went and intentionally sat down with each one of them and said, you know, tell me your story and where do you come from and how can we help you grow and all that kind of stuff. Not knowing at the time that all of them had this pretty extensive criminal history. And so when they, you know, told me where they had come from and that they were all engaged in reentry following, you know, release from incarceration, I was like, uh, oh my gosh, this is crazy. I mean, I grew up in Edmonds, very sheltered. I had no experience with this stuff. And then my initial reaction was fear because I didn't know. And I thought, oh, maybe I should be scared of these guys. Right. But at the same time, I had already gotten to know them for a period of time. They had been working alongside my husband. They were amazing employees, like very hard workers, very conscientious, just really trying to prove themselves and doing a fantastic job. And so my husband and I had to sit down and say, you know, it doesn't matter that they have a criminal history. We're doing construction. It's not like, you know, we're working with small children or we're doing something that, you know, would a background check would disqualify them from. And so, you know, we came back to it and said, well, you know, maybe it's worthwhile and they're great workers, like I said. And so let's, let's just see how this goes. And I'll be honest with you. I mean, I've managed hundreds of people in my career in, in this industry and in healthcare. And I have never had such like, enthusiastic conscientious workers as the people that we hire they are the most phenomenal employees and the rest of the employment world is totally missing this talent pool and i i hate to even talk about it publicly because i want them all for myself selfishly <laughs> but they genuinely are phenomenal employees and it's because they know that that people don't want to hire them they know that people are scared uh, right or wrong and so they they really do they work hard they they prove themselves they're constantly trying to learn and grow and and create a better opportunity for themselves and many of them acknowledge the fact that you know they haven't always made the best choices often those choices are driven by uh, frustrating circumstances that are outside of their control or response to trauma situations things that you know, are understandable to me now, now that I know and understand so much more about how they ended up where they did. But anyway, so that's how we got into this um, very much by accident. Now, 
you know, those original five, six guys, we still are close with almost all of them. Uh, some of them still work for us. Some of us have gone on, some of them have gone on to start their own construction companies or gone to the union. Um, but we've now, uh, between the three companies, we've touched just over a thousand people in the Seattle area, either through employment or housing opportunity. Absolutely incredible. I mean, that's just something, as you said, that is overlooked and, I can't imagine that folks would say, oh, yeah, this is going to be my hiring pool is I'm going to I'm head down to the DOC and and yep. uh, and and get some folks on board. Um, but yet yeah. uh, something kind of switched for you. And not only do you did you see this uh, a hiring pool, but you also saw um, the fact that. As you got to, and, and, I, and I know this a little bit because you and I talked about it, so <laughs> is mm-hmm. you, 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 you start to hear their story, right? And, mm-hmm. and how much story matters, right? When, and you yeah. heard about, you know, where they got to, you know, the place that they're in and, and some of the background and growing up and the trauma and things like that. And the fact mm-hmm. that, um, you know, second and often third chances, you know, are, are, are important. Tell us about yeah. that. Do you, I know there's so many stories you could probably tell about yeah. this, but what's yeah. something that sticks yeah. out? Yeah. I mean, I, I tons. I have so many stories, but I just, as a blanket, I'll say, I can very confidently say that a hundred percent of our people that we work with and for, uh, and have, have, you know, really come alongside and, and learn their story. A hundred percent of them have a significant childhood trauma, 100%. And that is the common denominator. They've had some trauma that's occurred to them or, or that's, that's happened to them that was not their doing. And yeah, maybe they made some bad choices in response to that trauma. But, you know, it's interesting you use the word second chance, and that's a common uh, terminology that we hear, or third chances. What I would argue is a lot of our people never had a chance to begin with. They grew up in poverty with parents that were not engaged or couldn't engage because of their own past circumstance. Uh, They did not have access to good education, to good nutrition, to housing. They did not have access to the same opportunities that I had growing up in a privileged environment. And all of them, when they tell me their stories and I hear what they've come from, I'm like, Dear God, if I had gone through what you went through, I don't think I would be upright. Like, how are you functioning in society and carrying on? And I think that's the part that I walk away from my job every day going, you know, it's, it's easy for those of us with opportunity and privilege to look at and judge people who are in situations different than us and say stupid stuff like, pick yourself up by your bootstraps, which is the thing. I hate that saying. I absolutely hate it. And, and knowing now those people and walking alongside them in their journey, I realize that there's no bootstraps. They're not even wearing any boots. Like there's a totally different scenario there that, you know, I think many of us that come from privilege, if we had to journey through what they journeyed through in terms of that childhood trauma and neglect, we would not be alive. And these people are heroes. They have, in fact, pulled themselves up, pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. They have navigated poverty and addiction and abuse and neglect and things that most of us would never stand up underneath. And so, you know, I see the people that work with us as heroes and the stories that, I mean, we see people every day 
uh, you know, men and women that are reunited with their children. We see families being put back together in really meaningful ways. People, you know, contributing to society through service and volunteerism and their employment, you know, and, and, and contributing and setting up shelters for people who are homeless across the country so they can have a chance. It's a really beautiful cycle of watching people put their lives back together and then turning around and offering what they've learned back to their communities in meaningful ways. And it's, it's really, it's beautiful. We've got Amy King with us today, CEO of Pallet and Weld, doing amazing work across the West Coast, uh, building tiny houses, doing um, hiring folks who are coming out of the criminal justice system, who have been battling with addiction, homelessness, and just really impressed by the work. Amy, we were talking before the break of... You know, 83%, you said, of, of your employees have experienced, um, you know, addiction or homelessness or have been coming out of the criminal justice system. And I remember one when we chatted, you know, a handful of months ago, remember, you know, you talked about, um, and I, and I want to kind of bridge this with, with what we were just chatting about before the break, because as you said, 100% of your men and women employees um, who have come out of the criminal justice system, who have experienced addiction, homelessness, had some childhood, significant childhood wound or trauma. And, Mm -hmm. but you also, and then you also said something that was, I think, important about what they've said to you now that they've, you know, really gotten back on their feet again and just, how how is it possible for them to get back on their feet and what does that look like because there's a i asked this because there's a big conversation like in our city right now and, and probably in every city about you know what does it look like right to uh, auburn mayor nancy backus she used the word tough love um and and some people and of course that means something different to everyone, right? How you define something is pretty important, right? Some what tough yeah. love what tough love is to someone is means something different to someone else. This this effort happening in Seattle right now, Compassion Seattle, which is to be a charter amendment to help bring services and clean up parks and things like that. You know, they like compassion to the folks involved with that looks different to other people. So we have all these kind of different definitions but you said something to me, um, and I'd love to have you just chat about it, because because you're day in and day out, you're working with the men and women uh, who are part of your companies, and and there's some things that you're learning about what does it look like for them to get back on their feet, and what does that look like, and can you can you share about that? Yeah, so, you know, I've definitely learned a lot about this space uh, in just listening to our people. And certainly I don't have personal experience, so I can't speak from personal experience here. But um, specifically our staff and and members at Weld have been really open and honest about what they think is an effective tool for helping people navigate sustainably out of homelessness and addiction and mental health issues. And, and by that, I mean, you know, and I, I kind of spoke to this a little bit earlier that there's sort of this um, strange thinking that it's in some way compassionate to allow people to remain 
in their state of dysfunction, especially as it relates to addiction, as an example, right? So a lot of our people, almost all of our people within WELD have a history of substance abuse. Um, and, and almost all of them have said, you know, in fact, I have, I have one woman who works with me in particular who says she'll, she'll walk down the streets of Seattle today and say, if I had been addicted in today's Seattle, I would be dead. Because being allowed to just have the heroin that I was using and in the volumes that I see on the streets today and be able to just use it freely like that there and with no accountability, there is no way that I would be upright or here. I would probably have overdosed and died. And that really stuck with me as someone, again, who has not experienced that. The thought that sometimes accountability for actions is actually what's needed to turn someone and to convince them to take a different route that will take them to health. Now, I want to balance that by saying, you know, my staff and myself also don't believe in the criminalization of of substance abuse or the criminalization of uh, homelessness. And so I think programs like Lisa Dugard's and REACH are a diversion programs are really important. And we've seen a lot of people really successfully rehabilitated through those diversion programs where there's accountability for actions, but not to the extent of, well, now you have to serve this extensive time in prison and all of the outcomes of that, which I've seen can be very negative. So right now our our society today is not well set up to address significant mental health and substance abuse issues. And we have to fix that. We have to help people get on the other side of this. And we are not helping them by saying, yeah, just stay as you are. It's fine. That's that's not useful for them or for us in any way. I mean, it's just absolutely powerful what you just said about the testimony of one of your employees. I mean, mm-hmm. it's almost like you need to, have you ever had a conversation with Pete Holmes? Have you ever, yeah, I mean, it's almost like mm-hmm. you need to sit down with, and have coffee with some of your workers and, and Pete Holmes and, mm-hmm. and talk about these kind of things. You know, Pete, who is our Seattle city attorney who basically um, has, will, will not prosecute or pursue whatsoever, any sort of drug charges. Um, and, and again, and I'm not, I, I'm certainly not this person who's like, oh, go, we're going to arrest our way out of it and go arrest everybody. Mm-hmm. We certainly know that's not the case. But what you're saying, though, is is on point in what, in, in what I've seen, you know, when I worked at, you know, Union Gospel Mission and, and seeing um, what those things are that can really help people get back on their feet again. I, I just, I, I get a little perplexed when, when we basically just say, hey, we're just going to let anyone do whatever they want to do. And that goes for, I mean, for anyone, right? Like, as human beings, don't we all need some level of accountability? Like, I know I do, Mm -hmm. right? Like, everybody, everybody needs that, right? We need, we need rails in our life. Yeah, for sure. And I think, I mean, the other piece of it that I've learned a lot from our staff is the concept. And again, I, I, I don't, this is something I never would have understood on my own is like, you know, there's this debate that's gone on recently about criminal activity, things like stealing, right? And and it's easy for someone who's housed and secure and safe to say, well, that's illegal. You stole something. There should be accountability for that, which I, I'm not disagreeing with. However, someone who's living in poverty and basically trying to survive might actually engage in those activities out of a survival mechanism. However, in the other piece to that that most people don't know if they haven't experienced homelessness and addiction and incarceration is sometimes that very act 
is an act of desperation because what they get inside the walls of county jail is better than what they're experiencing outside on the streets. And I think that's something that actually stood out to me is, is some of our staff who used to live in the jungle pretty consistently said to me, I used to go out and intentionally steal things to, right in front of cops so that they would take me to King County Jail for three nights where I would get meals and I would have a roof over my head because that was better than staying in the jungle. So what does that say? That, that doesn't say to me that the answer is criminalizing the behavior. The answer is why in the hell are we leaving people outside to suffer so that their only alternative is to intentionally commit a crime so that they can go to jail because that's better than what's available to them? That's garbage. We, we as a society have to do better than that. If we can't help our own people and our own neighbors literally just basically survive, then we are failing as a society. And their only option is jail and they're choosing that over staying outside, really what we need to do is start bringing people inside, giving them access to food and jobs and meaningful use of their time, uh, community that's supportive to them. Those things will help people find a different way. But just allowing them to remain out there floundering is not compassionate in any way. So what kind of response do you get when you when you say what you just said to – um, folks here in Seattle, social service providers, perhaps, you know, folks in, in leadership. I mean, what, what, what's the response? Well, that's a good question. Uh, so social service providers are people we're in conversation with a lot. I think a lot of most of the vast majority of them agree. I don't have a lot of conversations with decision makers and elected officials. Um, they're not engaging with us at this point in time. The one exception to that, I will say, who's been great is um, Dow Constantine and Mark Ellerbrook and the team in King County. I do think that they are actively trying to pursue opportunities to bring people in as quickly as possible. Dow just announced his Homes to Health initiative, which I think is a great start. Um, But the city officials, we have not had hardly any interaction with them at all. Yeah. I saw recently uh, one of our Seattle City Council members said that housing is the one and only way that we get out of this homelessness crisis we're in. And I just, I read that and I was like, man, I I can't believe there's not just pushback on this because housing obviously is important. It's one part of it. No question. Mm -hmm. However, to, to say that that is like the, the silver bullet that ends this thing. And it's all you, we all know that the folks who are dealing with mental illness and addiction and, and other things, I mean, that doesn't cure that, right? It doesn't, a house, a place to live is absolutely important. Uh, and we need mm-hmm. to bring folks inside, but that doesn't cure mental illness or addiction, does it? Yeah, that's, that's no, that's right. And I think you're right. I think what, I mean, not knowing who you're talking about or what they mean, because I haven't spoken with them. I, I think there's two sides to this conversation and we get into this debate all the time in cities across America. Housing is is the solution. However, the structure itself, so what you put someone in, the four walls, the floor, the roof, is irrelevant. It's a tool. And the point of housing first, which Khaled is a part of and Weld is a part of, is to bring people inside and stabilize them enough so that they can consistently engage with services. But the services and the community are the piece that actually provide a rehabilitative opportunity for the person to make a different choice and to, or sometimes it's not a choice, right? But to to get the services that they need 
to have a different life. Let's put it that way, right? So, so the housing is a critical piece, but the, the house, the actual structure itself is not going to solve homelessness. And we see this in cities across America that say, you know, well, I gave them a house and so they're housed and that's it. I'm done. No, you're wrong. That person and, and our people who've lived experience with homelessness would tell you this. If you give me the key to an apartment, but you don't address my underlying root cause of, you know, addiction, mental health issues, poverty that I've been living in forever and I can't seem to get out of because I don't have opportunity for wealth generation because of racist tendencies in our country or, you know, whatever. Fill in the blanks. A million different things that cause someone to end up homeless. If you don't address that root cause issue, the house itself ends up just being a box for loneliness and a place for people to stay and isolate. And our staff have told us, especially if you're in addiction or you have an untreated mental health issue, going to an apartment without consistent service provision or access to community to bounce things off of and to uh, rehabilitate within, you will eventually gravitate back out to the streets or you might overdose and die in your apartment. So, yeah, you were housed, but was that successful? No, not at all, right? And so I think that's the piece that's missing from the conversation is, yes, housing is the critical path. It also can't be built fast enough or cheap enough to address the scale of the problem because we have ignored it for so long. So we have to do something to get people inside quickly, but it has to be done with services and access to opportunity. So that means jobs. That means Um, you know, counseling and case management. It means community. We as a community also need to open our arms and say, hey, we welcome you into our businesses, our churches, our neighborhoods, our family groups, because people need community in order to rehabilitate and they can't continue to isolate the way that they have been. Got Amy King, the CEO of Pallet and weld with us doing great work in our community and all along the west coast and we're talking um, how we serve folks who are uh, battling addiction and mental health and homelessness and amy is on the front lines doing amazing work and one of the things that we chatted about here in the last segment was you know how to get you know services that it's just it You know, housing is not going to solve our problem. It's certainly, as we said, a critical path, but it's just one of the ways that we help people get back on their feet again and restore dignity to their life. And Amy, one of the things that you have going now is Weld. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the Seattle Times did a great feature on this a few months ago. Tell Tell our listeners about what Weld is and what's what's coming. Yeah, so we're really excited. Weld is a nonprofit organization that um, basically provides housing, um, access to opportunity and resources around the city for people that are reentering following incarceration, um, addiction recovery, and homelessness. And so we we have a couple different program areas um, for the last. I think it's five years now, we have been housing people utilizing vacant developer properties throughout the city. So that's our primary program area. We turn those houses into clean and sober living houses. They are democratically run um, by house managers on site with accountability, with um, meetings, regular meetings and all kinds of services set up inside the house to help the rehabilitative process of the individuals individuals that are living there. Uh, We house about 100 to 150 people a year in that program, and it's just been wildly successful for us. 
Um, last year, we also launched a program called Weld Works, which is a staffing agency that provides individuals exiting the system to uh, contract uh, labor jobs. So we started out in the construction industry because that's what we know, but we're now working in um, cleaning and sanitation and manufacturing, hospitality, all kinds of industries. And the thought there is kind of twofold. One is, you know, we want to introduce people exiting the system to jobs and we encourage employers who hire our individuals on a contract basis to pick them off if they like them. There's no placement or headhunter fee if they decide they want to employ them. And we will continue to support the individual for up to a year after placement and employment with all of their soft skills and other needs outside of employment. Um, And then we also want to encourage employers to Uh, sort of, as I say, dip their toe in the water of second chance employment and try out the model that we love and embody and and think is really meaningful. Um, And so this is a way for them to see what would it be like to employ someone coming from that background. uh, And then again, we encourage them to take them. So that's WeldWorks. Um, And then the last thing which we're excited to announce and you mentioned is um, called 1426. So earlier this year, we were very graciously given a building uh, by Rich Barton, the CEO of Zillow and his wife, Sarah. Uh, They bought us a building on Jackson Street, just up from Pioneer Square, Uh, and we just received our building permits, which we are so excited about, and we're going to be renovating that building and turning it into Seattle's first um, collaborative reentry resource center. So we will be partnering with organizations like Recovery Cafe, uh, the Clemency Project, Innocence Project, um, a whole bunch of groups that are doing awesome criminal justice and social justice work in and around the city. Um, And that we're going to be providing mental health and social work services, um, adult education classes, resume building, job placement, housing placement. Um, And then we're also very excited. The basement is going to have a yoga studio, an art studio, and a recording studio in partnership with Pearl Jam and some great uh, art organizations in our community. And we'll be offering trauma-informed creative therapy services out of the building as well. So really exciting. Uh, We won't be open for about nine to 12 more months, but um, that entire effort is entirely led and driven by people with lived experience. So Weld is completely staffed with individuals exiting the system uh, who have experience with the system all the way from our executive director down. Everybody on staff has that lived experience uh, and they build amazing programs that are incredibly effective. So we're really excited. Wow. Well, you had me at Pearl Jam and um, yeah, I know. <laughs> so what, so they're partnering with y'all. What, what does that look like? Yeah, so they've been really great to help us. Um, They've been great to help with funding and sponsorship of the recording studio itself. And then, um, as you're probably aware, a number of members of Pearl Jam have been engaged with all kinds of cool um, community service programs like Music Cares. And so we're looking at opportunities to do music-based awareness building around social justice issues And then, you know, opportunities for youth, uh, troubled youth that are, you know, we're trying to prevent from going into the system, that kind of stuff. So there'll be a recording studio there where we can work with youth um, on music and we'll have pottery wheel and art and yoga and all those things, like I mentioned. So the idea there is, you know, people are going to come into the space and do some really hard work that's really important and significant around their trauma and around their experience. And you can kind of, you know, let that out in a creative way. That's what we've learned from our people through the utilization of art. And and so that's something we wanted to incorporate in the building to give people the opportunity to process what they've gone through and and kind of their path forward in a creative way. So that might be writing a song. It might be creating a piece of pottery, doing some yoga and mindfulness, that kind of thing. So it's kind of a kind of an exciting new adventure to kind of mix 
the social work and mental health with the creative side. So we're, we're excited about that. Wow. That just incredible. I cannot wait for this to open. I mean, what would take us in? So if we're walking into this, this building, the 1426, Mm -hmm. I mean, what broaden our imagination here? What, as folks yeah. kind of walk in and there's going to be probably, as you said, in the basement, we know there's going to be a yoga mm-hmm. studio, recording studio. I mean, kind of walk us around. What, what's this going to look like? Yeah. So the main floor is going to have a coffee shop that's open to the community. So we would strongly encourage people to come and support us in that way if they'd like to. Um, and the people that will be working in the coffee shop will be people exiting the system. So job opportunities there um, in the hospitality industry. Um, and then they'll be actually on that main floor. There's going to be a big event space, um, which we're excited. You know, once we can have events again, uh, we're going to be hosting a lot of social justice events. there, looking at Um, you know, the impacts of systemic racism, of the criminal justice system, of the real estate system, and how, you know, how that's impacted home ownership opportunities and wealth generation. There's a lot of things we want to talk about. And I think people who know me know that I live to make people uncomfortable. I love to bring groups together that are inherently in conflict, as you do, Tim, and have them all at the same table to really hash out what's going on and how we can move forward. And so this space is really intended for that kind of activity um, around, you know, bringing awareness to things, but also bringing inherent stakeholders together who have some inherent conflict around the issue to talk about things. So, um, so that's exciting for us too. Um, then on this, the next floor up, there will be um, an actual social work and mental health clinic um, with, with, um, service rooms and whatnot. So we're looking at partnering with Seattle University and University of Washington around that. So there'll be internship opportunities for students to engage in social justice issues and get internship hours um, and also training some of our own people who have a great deal of interest in uh, the social workspace. Um, so there'll be peer driven counselors there. Our models are very peer driven and that's what makes them so successful. And we're big believers in giving the people who have walked the road opportunity to solve the problem. Uh, And so we'll be doing some training around peer counselors and and things like that in that space as well. And then the top floor is going to be, think of it as like a WeWork for social justice organizations. So there'll be a a few different organizations. We're not sure exactly who yet. There's an RFP process that's going to open in the next couple months here um, for groups that want to participate with us and either they can office there or they can just participate as part of our network as well well. Um, And so the concept there is people who come to receive services there. We want to make this really clear that 1426 is not a drop-in center. Um, It is a place for people who are actively engaged with services to improve their life. And so someone who comes to our door for help that is not engaged with a service provider will be encouraged and incentivized to engage with a community service provider. And we have lots of great ones here in Seattle. So we will connect them to services that the services that they need. And once they are connected with and established with one of those partner organizations, they will be very welcome to participate in all the services that are provided there at 1426. Amy, what do you do in your spare time? <laughs> <I work>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, no, I don't have a lot of spare time. Yeah. This is something that obviously we're very passionate about and, Um, Actually, 1426 kind of is my spare time passion project. Um, I will say I should I should say that um, and you didn't know this. It's not your fault, but I'm not actually the CEO of Weld. I am the founder of Weld, but I have very happily handed it off to 
really capable people who come from uh, the backgrounds that we serve. Um, and they really run that. And I just step in and help them as needed. I can't take credit for the beautiful programs that they have created and run today. Um, and so 1426 is sort of uh, my passion project, my free time, helping them figure out the best way to do that. We have a team of advi- an advisory committee of, of all impacted people that are actually putting together all of the, you know, who's going to be in the, in the building, who are the organizations that are partnering, um, what does the programming look like? And I'm just sort of stepping in and out and helping them as needed with foundational structure stuff. So, uh, but they do beautiful, amazing work. And I would be remiss to not talk about, um, they actually have a less than 3% recidivism rate in the programs that they've built. The national average for five years recidivism rate in, in, across the country is 77%. Oh, my goodness. And Weld's recidivism rate is three. Oh, and it's because my. It's, because it's run by people who come from that background. We just announced our first ever executive director, Patrick Arney. He's a phenomenal human being, spent most of his youth actually here locally in the juvenile system and was in and out of jail and struggled with addiction and all these things. Today, he is a husband and a father and just a phenomenal human being. And he runs well, and he does a good job. So I would, I have to give him credit. That's absolutely incredible, Amy. Oh my goodness. That is incredible. I mean, if, if anyone wanted to connect and do you, do you have opportunities for folks to, you know, either volunteer or just get a, you know, be a part of, of what's going on? Yeah, absolutely. So if people want to get involved with 1426, they can send us an email. They can send me an email. It's just Amy, A-M-Y, at weldseattle.org. And we can connect you with, uh, we have some volunteer coordinators who are taking interest from people in the community right now. And then, like I said, we're still a few months out from opening and, and we'll get people plugged in in their area of passion and interest, and there'll be plenty of opportunity. So people can send us an email. Okay. That's awesome. And I love, Amy, one one last question here while we've got mm-hmm. you. I love to kind of end our interviews with uh, this question. How do you want to be remembered, Amy? Mm. Hmm. Um, that's a really, really good question. Um, I would love to be remembered as a, uh, a social justice warrior as someone who fought for the people who couldn't find their own voices. Um, and that's, I want to be the person who hands any microphone that I have off to someone who doesn't usually get that chance. I want to elevate the stories and voices of the heroes that I get to walk with every day. And I want to be remembered uh, because of them. Uh, I, I don't care if anyone knows my name. I want everyone to know their name, Patrick's name and Jody's name and Carolyn's name. And that's, that's how I want to be remembered is, is connected with them. Mm. Amy King, the CEO of pallet and square peg Mm -hmm. and the founder of weld. Thanks for the correction. (laughs) Hey, so good to have you on the show today, Amy. This has been just a real, just joy and pleasure. And I'm just, I'm impressed with what you're doing. And I know our listeners are so encouraged as we share these inspiring stories of folks building the common good in our state. So thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Fantastic having Amy King with us today and just hearing their cool work. So many, um, you know, great ways that we're seeing folks uh, do some good work here. So I hope uh, you were encouraged today. 
that's one of our hopes is that we find ways to encourage each other and be able to see how we can work together. We don't just necessarily have one particular point of view or, but we can listen to others and we can have, we can hold on to our convictions and values and be able to work with others across many different spectrums. So again, so great to have you with us. 